Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, your host, Jeremy Walker. We're dealing with a sermon today that was preached on the 3rd of January, 1864. If you're a regular listener, or if you're not and you want to know how we approach things, then each week we read through a selection of sermons by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a gifted pastor preacher from the Victorian period, and we feature a sermon each week for the podcast, and for those who can't read one every single day and maybe just want a representative taste, and the sermon for this week is entitled Suffering and Reigning with Jesus. Now, uh, for the early years of his ministry, an aged Anglican preacher would send Spurgeon a text at the beginning of each year, and Spurgeon would use that for his New Year's sermon. So the text on this occasion, and he refers to the arrangement, my venerable friend who has hitherto sent me a text for the new year, still ministers to his parish the word of life and has not forgotten to furnish the passage for our meditation today. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. If we suffer or endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now Spurgeon says he's in a bit of a quandary on this one because he preached from a text of a similar character only short time previously. But he says, I'm, I'm going to take courage and to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Uh, the emphasis there being that uh, maybe in God's providence perhaps the, uh, the, the, the old minister has uh, given him something that the people really need to get a grip on and so they have the privilege of hearing the same thing twice. He wants the congregation then to observe that the text is part of one of Paul's faithful sayings, of which there are four, and he just runs through them briefly. And then he zeroes in on this one. The connection between them, he says, is clear. The first one speaks of Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners, laying the foundation of our eternal salvation in the free grace of God. The next affirms the double blessedness which we obtain through this salvation, the blessings of the upper and nether springs, time and eternity. The third shows one of the duties to which the chosen people are called. We are ordained to suffer for Christ with a promise that if we suffer we shall also reign with him. And the last sets forth the active form of Christian service, bidding us diligently to maintain good works. Very interesting that when he when he puts those four together, he sees them as plugging together in that way. Thus, he says, you have the root of salvation in free grace. Grace. Next, the privileges of that salvation in the life which now is and in that which is to come. And you have also the two great branches of suffering with Christ and service of Christ loaded with the fruits of the spirit of all grace. The third of those sayings then is the one that has to deal with suffering. He wants us to read the verse preceding the text. He wants us to put it in context. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. All the elect, he says, were virtually dead with Christ when he died upon the tree, and now they are raised up together with him. His life becomes their life, and as he was, so are they also in this world. So there's this union with Christ which lies behind the statement of the text. And while we sometimes say that Spurgeon is a an interesting exegete, uh, and there'll be occasions coming up perhaps when we dig into that a little bit more, he isn't typically careless. 
He knows where the text comes in its context. He understands it in that way, and that's what he's doing here. He doesn't want to break away from that un, uh, unrighteously or unreasonably. So he says, May the Lord make us rooted and grounded in the mysterious but most consolatory doctrine of union with Christ Jesus. And out of that union, we come to the text, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also, he also will deny us. And so he goes into a basic two-part structure, suffering with Jesus and its reward, denying Jesus and its penalty. First of all, suffering with Jesus and its reward. What he does in this first main section is he uh, introduces the idea as a whole. Then he comes to say uh, that there are some certain distinctions that need to be properly made. And then he turns to some uh, particular uh, thoughts or uh, examples of how it is that various people will suffer. So, first of all, we must suffer if we live, no matter in what style we spend our existence. Everybody suffers, says Spurgeon. That's normal. So, if a man has sorrow, it doesn't necessarily follow that he shall be rewarded for it. We, we sometimes uh, almost impute a, a kind of a virtue to suffering in itself, as if there were uh, something inherently uh, wonderful or blessed in the, uh, in the idea that we're just, we're just going through a hard time and we deserve some kind of reward. But Spurgeon's point is that we must suffer with Christ in order to reign with him. Suffering in and of itself has no inherent virtue and wins no inherent reward. The suffering which brings the reigning with Jesus must be a suffering with Jesus. You cannot reign with him unless you suffer with him. And he talks us then about the, uh, the current error among those poor people who are ignorant of true religion that all poor and afflicted people will be rewarded for it in the next state, as if our social or financial status in this world somehow uh, obliges God to deal well with us in the world which is to come. And he uses the example of Lazarus and the rich man uh, and says that Lazarus, the poor man, wasn't carried into heaven by the angels because he was poor, but because his heart was in heaven. And when the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell, it wasn't because he was rich, but because he'd never lifted them up on earth toward God and heavenly things. So there's no necessary connection between suffering here and happiness hereafter. It is only a certain order of suffering to which a reward is promised, the suffering which comes to us from fellowship with the Lord Jesus and conformity to his image. And I think there's a sentiment abroad today that almost assumes that if you've got it hard here, God is obliged to make it easy there. And it's important that the church doesn't slide into this kind of uh, empty and unhelpful sentiment. And so Spurgeon really presses this home with a series of comments to help us make that distinction. And his first is that we must not imagine that we're suffering for Christ and with Christ if we are not in Christ. 
So the first essential here is that we genuinely be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, united to him by the faith which God gives. Are you in Christ by a living faith? Are you trusting to Jesus only? If not, whatever you may have to mourn over on earth, you have no hope of reigning with Jesus in heaven. So in Christ must come first. And the second distinction that he wants to make, or the, the help in making this distinction, is that it is essential that a Christian man be called by God to suffer. For not all sufferings of a Christian are necessarily sufferings with Christ. There may be some people who uh, impose sufferings upon themselves, mortification and self-denial in a, in a curious and ungodly way, mutilating the body or depriving yourself of good things that God has given to be enjoyed. Spurgeon says you might admire the man's fortitude, but that doesn't mean that he's suffering with Christ because the God of love hasn't called men to such austerities. So to, to, to torture oneself, to assault oneself in the name of God, if God hasn't called us to that, it is not suffering with Christ. And uh, he, he makes the point, actually, and I think it's a good one. He's not just talking about the, uh, the, the excesses, for example, of uh, Roman Catholicism. But he talks about uh, the occasions on which excited Protestants have rushed into Romish cathedrals, have knocked down the priest, dashed the wafer upon the ground, trod upon it, and in other ways exhibited their hatred of idolatry. Now, when the law has interposed to punish such outrages, the offenders are hardly to be considered as suffering with Christ. Now, I think we need to be careful here. We're not saying that every law is a good law and that Christians obey all laws without question. Here the point is that there is a reasonable law and that if you break that reasonable law without just warrant, then you are not able to claim that you are suffering with Christ. You need the command of God to do something which men have forbidden or a command of God not to do something which men are requiring. Spurgeon's point is it's not necessary to protest against Roman Catholicism by acting in this way. And so he says, let us mind that we make distinction between things which differ and do not pull a house down on our heads and then pray the Lord to console us under the trying providence. Very important that we understand what he's saying there. Then in troubles which come upon us as the result of sin, we must not think we are suffering with Christ. If you put your hand into the fire and it gets burned, well, it's the nature of fire to burn you or anybody else. So don't boast as though you were a martyr. It is not an infallible sign of excellence to be in bad repute among men. Sometimes it's easy to say, well, if everybody hates me, I must be doing something right. That's not necessarily true. If you're loathed and despised because you're loathsome and despicable, then Actually, that, that's, that's the way of the world in, in the best sense. Now, Christians are sometimes loathed and despised, but we, we must make sure that it is because we are Christians and not because we're just obnoxious and, and hard-hearted and difficult. We must not talk as if we suffered nobly for Jesus when we're only troubled as the result of sin. Then, 
the true suffering that God accepts and rewards for Christ's sake must have God's glory as its end, not our own reputation or to win applause among men. Uh, the kind of thing that sort of says, yeah, well, look at me. It's a sort of Jehu-like zeal, isn't it? Come and see my zeal for the Lord. Watch me being a great man. See me holding up Jesus Christ so magnificently. It's, it's, a, it's obnoxious. It's, it's appalling. Also, mind too that love to Christ and love to his elect is ever the mainspring of all my patience. You need to take account of that. Though I give my body to be burned and have not charity or love, it profits me nothing. If I suffer in bravado, filled with proud defiance of my fellow men, if I love the dignity of singularity and out of dogged obstinacy hold to an opinion, not because it is right and I love God too well to deny his truth, but because I choose to think as I like, then I, I suffer not with Jesus." If there be no love to God in my soul, if I do not endure all things for the elect's sake, I may bear a, many a cuff and buffeting, but I miss the fellowship of the Spirit and have no recompense. And again, there are some who are uh, the language perhaps of the, the cage stage Calvinist, uh, the man who just uh, loves to stand alone and to be seen as being brought down, a sort of a, maybe even an Elijah complex. Oh, here I am, I alone am left. Nope. That's not the way to suffer with Christ. And then, finally, in this respect, I must manifest the Spirit of Christ or else I do not suffer with him. He says, I heard of a certain minister who, having had a great disagreement with many members in his church, preached from the text and Aaron held his peace. The sermon was intended to portray himself as an astonishing instance of meekness, but as his previous words and actions had been quite sufficiently violent, a witty hearer observed that the only likeness he could see between Aaron and the preacher was this. Aaron held his peace, and the preacher did not. It's easy enough, says Spurgeon, to discover some parallel between our cases and those of departed saints, but not so easy to establish the parallel by holy patience and Christ-like forgiveness. So if in the way of virtue you've brought down upon yourself shame and rebuke, if you're hot to defend yourself and punish the slanderer, if you're irritated, unforgiving and proud, you've lost then a noble opportunity of fellowship with Jesus. You may have been in the way of virtue first of all, but it's your response to the, the shame and rebuke that follows that demonstrates whether or not you are in fellowship with Jesus at that point. I must have Christ's spirit in me or I do not suffer acceptably. If, like a sheep before her shearers, I can be dumb. If I can bear insult and love the man who inflicts it. If I can pray with Christ, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If I submit all my case to him who judges righteously and count it even my joy to suffer reproach for the cause of Christ, then and only then have I truly suffered with Christ. Again, there's uh, need to be careful here that we're not just drifting into sort of passivity or quiescence or an unhealthy kind of uh, passive pietism, but Spurgeon, I don't think, is suggesting that. Rather, that the Spirit of Christ, that meek and loving heart, must be in us if we are to claim that we are truly suffering with him. And Spurgeon's aware of the impact that this might have. 
These remarks, he says, may seem very cutting and may take away much false but highly prized comfort from some of you. This is something that the preacher sometimes needs to do. He cuts away what doesn't belong in order that what does belong may grow properly. And so, he says, it's not my intention to take away any true comfort from the humblest believer who really suffers with my Lord, but God grant we may have honesty enough not to pluck flowers out of other men's gardens or wear other men's honours. Truth only will be desired by true men. And so, he's zeroed in. Don't claim you're suffering with Christ if you're not. In order to say, I am suffering with Christ, you must be in Christ. You must be suffering in a way that God has called you into. You must not be suffering because of your own sinfulness and foolishness. You must have God's glory as your proper end. You must have love to Christ and his elect as the mainspring of your patience. And you must show the spirit of Christ. If you are in that category, if you are in that environment, if those are the marks of your suffering positively in the, in the best sense, then you really are suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks then about some of the ways in which this might happen. Some suffer in their estates. That is, it costs them with regard to their, their worldly comforts, perhaps their jobs, their, uh, their wages, their uh, reputations. He talks about the uh, circumstances in which uh, various people have had to give much up in terms of their finances in order to follow Jesus Christ. He talks about uh, people who were once in very comfortable circumstances but who lived in a neighbourhood where most business was done on a Sunday and when Grace shut up their shop, trade left them. I know some of them are working very hard for their bread though once they earned abundance without any great toil or people who were employed as servants in lucrative positions involving sin, became Christians and were obliged to resign their former post. I know a man who was in a trade um, who, when he became a Christian, within a few months he realised, I cannot, as a Christian, continue to do this kind of work. And he's found it almost impossible, having given himself before conversion to learning that particular sphere, he finds it very hard to find work now that he can profitably do. It's a grief to his heart, but he is suffering in his estate, suffering in his finances because of his attachment to Jesus Christ. True Christians of all denominations, says Spurgeon, love each other and hate persecution, but nominal Christians and ungodly men would make our land as hot as in the days of Mary if they dared. They will use these things in order to put pressure on God's people. But more usually, says Spurgeon, the suffering takes the form of personal contempt. And here's that reputational damage pointed out at the streets, insults shouted after you. It's not a small trial to be saluted by uh, un unkind and, and cruel names, looked upon like an idiot or a madman. He says that believers also have to suffer falsehood and slander. <clears throat> There's, uh, he's talking about himself here and, and, and he talks about himself more or less in the third person. I know a man who scarcely ever speaks a word which is not misrepresented and hardly performs an action which is not misconstrued. He's being hounded at every point. 
Every motive but the right one will be imputed to a man. His good will be evil spoken of, his zeal will be called imprudence, his courage impertinence, his modesty cowardice, his earnestness rashness. It is impossible for the true believer in Christ, who is called to do to any eminent service, to do anything right. You feel a bit of the personal pain in that. If, he says then, if in your measure you bear undeserved rebuke for Jesus Christ's sake, comfort yourself with these words, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Then he said, if you suffer, serve Christ so as to sacrifice, you are bringing upon yourself inconvenience and pain, labour and loss. If so, then you can say, I am suffering with Christ. It's a very pointed statement that he makes here now. We are all too much occupied with taking care of ourselves. We shun the difficulties of excessive labour. And frequently behind the entrenchments, the, uh, the protective battlements of taking care of our constitution, we do not half as much as we ought. A minister of God is bound to spurn the suggestions of ignoble ease. It is his calling to labour, and if he destroys his constitution, I for one only thank God that he permits us the high privilege of so making ourselves living sacrifices. If earnest ministers should bring themselves to the grave, not by imprudence, for that we would not advocate, but by honest labour, such as their ministry and their consciences require of them, they will be better in their graves than out of their graves, if they come there for the cause of Christ. What? Are we never to suffer? Are we to be carpet knights? Are God's people... Carpet knights there, he means... Uh, people who um, we might call them armchair warriors today, that kind of thing. Are God's people to be put away in wadding, perfumed with lavender and boxed up in quiet softnesses? Nay, verily, unless they would lose the reward of true saints. Now we hear a lot today about self-preservation and some of that is reasonable. But a lot of pastoral theology today sometimes seems to be suggesting that Pastors should not suffer. Now, Spurgeon isn't saying, look for suffering, try and destroy yourselves. He says we're not going to be imprudent, but we can go too far in the other direction and assume that we should have an easy and a comfortable life. And that's not the case if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Then he says, going on from this, don't forget that contention with inbred lusts, denials of proud self, resistance of sin, agony against Satan are all forms of suffering with Christ. In the holy war within us, we can earn a bright crown. And then, and this is particularly painful, when friends forsake or become foes. Even father and mother sometimes forsake. The husband persecutes the wife. We've known even the children turn against the parents. A man's foes are those of his own household. And this is one of the devil's best instruments for making believers suffer. And those who have to drain this cup for the Lord's sake shall reign with him. So, outline so far. If we suffer with Christ, we shall reign with him. Let's make sure that our suffering is really with Christ. And then let's understand and consider some of the sufferings with Christ that may come to us. And now an application under this first point. Brothers, if you are thus called to suffer for Christ, will you quarrel with me if I say in adding all up, 
what a very little it is compared with reigning with Jesus. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Spurgeon says most of us today, in his own context, aren't suffering as others have suffered in the past. Our sufferings are scarcely a pin's prick and yet still a glorious reward. There never is a comparison between the service with its suffering and the reward in all its glory, and therefore the reward is all of grace. We do a little, we suffer little, and even that little grace gives us, and yet the Lord grants a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And he's emphasizing now that really the only way that we will be able to suffer with Christ is if we keep our eyes fixed upon the glory which is to come. So vital that we live in time with an eye on eternity. So he urges us, as Christ did, to fix our eyes on what lies ahead. Christ, for the glory that was set, joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. And if we're to reign with Christ, then we need to keep our eyes fixed upon that in order that we may now suffer with him. And that brings Spurgeon more briefly to his second point, denying Christ and its penalty. You who say most loudly, though all men shall deny thee, yet will I not, you are the most likely to do it. He's commenting on the fact that when Christ warned his disciples about the coming, uh, the, the betrayal that would, that would come, they all thought, is it I? They weren't puffing out their chests. Peter eventually started making those kinds of statements. But you know, he came to the point of denial, whereas when the betrayal was mooted, these were men who were thinking, maybe I could do it. And Spurgeon says, be wary, for there's a way of denying Christ without even speaking a word. And this is much more common than, for example, a sort of a doctrinal declaration that he's, he's not really God or that he didn't really die or that uh, his atonement was not effective. He said, many in the day of blasphemy and rebuke simply hide their heads. They're in company where they ought to speak up for Christ, but they put their hands on their mouths they don't come forward to profess their faith in Jesus. They have a sort of faith, but one which yields no obedience. Now, he wants us to understand that no one who has a genuine faith in Christ will lose it, for the faith which God gives will live forever. And yet, he says that you need to actually stand up and be counted for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says now, you will not perish if you've denied Christ, if you fly to him for refuge. Yes, Peter denied, but Peter is in heaven. A transient, that is a passing, forsaking of Jesus under temptation, will not bring on everlasting ruin if faith shall step in and the grace of God intervene. But persevere in that denial, continue in the denial of the Saviour, and my terrible text will come upon you, he also will deny you. Now here you've got the uh, the sensitive pastor and what he's trying to do is to make sure that you don't uh you don't draw the wrong conclusions and yet he doesn't want to draw the sting he he doesn't want you to think that you can just go on basically hiding an alleged attachment to Jesus Christ and imagine that that is some kind of faithfulness to the savior 
And so you need to understand that if you go on denying Christ, if you do not own him and love him and serve him and testify of him, if you've not got more than a mere name that you live, then he also will deny you. And he thinks about two particular ways that this is going to happen, sometimes on earth and ultimately in another world. And he uses a number of examples, a very famous one from church history of a man called Francis Spira or Spira. Uh, if you've ever read it, you never can forget it to your dying day. A man who was a reformer of, of some reputation and recounted uh, because of fear and in a short time fell into despair. And, and, and people used to use him as an example of the, the horrors of that state. Benjamin Keach talks about a man who was very earnest for Puritanism, but in times of persecution he forsook his profession and seemed to come to absolute despair. talks about a man called Richard Denton, a zealous Lollard, that's the, the time of Wycliffe, um, and, and he'd been used by God, but when he came to suffer, he renounced everything and went into the Church of Rome, and he died in a house fire where he went back into his home to rescue some of his money. Spurgeon says then, if I must be lost, let it be anyhow rather than as an apostate. Let us lose everything rather than lose Christ. Let us sooner suffer anything than lose our ease of conscience and our peace of mind. It's really, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian listening to this and you're thinking, but there is so much for me to lose, I know it and Spurgeon knows it, but more importantly, Christ knows it. And it is more important that you have your clear conscience before God than that you have anything else in this world. You must know that you are Christ's and that you have not turned your back upon him. And again, if you feel that you've done that, you can repent, you can be restored. But we must follow after Christ. Why? Because even in, if in this world we were to lose our ease of conscience and our peace of mind, how much worse when we come into another world. Maybe some will appear before the judgment seat with a sort of hope in their minds and will come before the judge with, Lord, Lord, open to us. Who are you, he says. Well, we, we took the Lord's Supper. We were members of the church, but, but things got tough. My mother bade me give up religion. My father was angry. My trade went bad. I was mocked at and I couldn't stand it. Then I, I fell amongst evil friends and they tempted me. I couldn't resist. I was, of course, your servant. I did love you. I, I always loved you, of course, but, but I couldn't help it. I had to do it. I had to go that way. What else would you expect of me? What will Jesus say? I do not know you, whose you are. But Lord, be my advocate. I don't know you. But I can't get into heaven unless you open the gate. Open for me. I do not know you. But, but I was a member of the church. I do not know you. Will you hear my cries? You did not hear mine. You denied me and I denied you. It is a terrible, terrible picture that the preacher paints but a very proper one. Lord, give me the lowest place in heaven, cries this person, if I just may enter and escape from the wrath to come. No, says the risen Jesus, you would not brook the lowest place on earth. You cannot have the lowest place in heaven. You had your choice, you chose evil, and you will keep to your choice. 
Oh, sirs, said the preacher, if you would not see the angry face of Jesus, if you would not behold the lightning flashing from his eye and hear the thunder of his mouth in the day when he judges the fearful and the unbelieving and the hypocrite, if you would not have your portion in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, cry this day mightily unto God, Lord, hold me fast, keep me, keep me, help me to suffer with you that I may reign with you, but do not, do not let me deny you, lest you also should deny me. I can't imagine that Spurgeon preached that dry-eyed, can you? I can't imagine that he said that without deepest grief of heart and of, uh, of soul, a bubbling out of, of deepest affectionate feeling toward those who were hearing him. Now you might say, well, what a way to finish a New Year's sermon. And I'd say, yeah, painful, stinging even, deep cutting, but how necessary. We're not at the beginning of a year as we at least record and <clears throat> maybe listen to this. Some of you may be. But how will we approach the year to come? How will we approach the hour or the day to come? If we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. These are Profound, sometimes painful, difficult things for us to deal with. But it's important that we understand what is at stake. Well, God willing, you'll join us again on another occasion. Uh, Nothing but leaves, God willing, is the, uh, the sermon for next week. It's number 555. And I trust that you'll join us on that occasion. And that God will, until then, help us and keep us as we seek to serve him and to testify of him, if need be, suffering with Christ, that we may reign together with him. Goodbye for now, and God bless. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information, and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.